Hello and welcome everybody to the Wealth and Wellbeing podcast. This is the only podcast that helps to demystify the world of financial services. I am again joined by Ellie Luce. Um, Ellie, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me back. Yeah, you bet. And this is one you won't want to miss. Um, we're actually delving into a subject matter that very few banks uh, chase. And, and um, we are diving into a subject matter that very few banks uh, even address. So the subject matter today is cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin. And our guest is an accountant extraordinaire, a <laughs> Uh, financier extraordinaire, and he just happens to serve as our chief financial officer, Kevin Thompson. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It is not uh, very common for CFOs of banks to have this wealth of knowledge about cryptocurrency and um, this sort of alternate way and form of paying for things. Um, so we are very excited to have your expertise today. Um, we're going to uh, delve into very various components of the subject matter, um, but I kind of wanted to start just with a background on cryptocurrency and maybe more specifically, how did you get into cryptocurrency um, given sort of your educational upbringing, so to speak? Sure. Yeah, I have always been a little bit of a divergent thinker when it comes to other people. Uh, you know, I grew up playing sports and a musician as well. And uh, my brain works a little differently than other people. <clears throat> I saw the beauty of uh, cryptocurrencies early on, found it very interesting and, and, and studied the, the background of how they came about. And uh, it sounds like that was the first part of your question. What's the background of cryptocurrency yeah i mean it's you know we're we're sitting here in 20 in the end of 2021 as we're recording this and um there's been a lot of noise about cryptocurrency but i think um you know oftentimes the past teaches us so much about the future and so we thought for our listeners at least maybe getting some kind of understanding of what the background is when did it start why was it born and um you know sort of where where we've been since since its inception yeah, you bet. It's a fascinating history. And of course, I would say that because I'm interested in these. But really, uh, for years, different groups were trying to create digital or cryptocurrencies uh, to facilitate transactions. And, and it was happening a lot in uh, gaming and internet applications. Uh, but the technology to use as a foundation just wasn't advanced enough yet for or, or and a broad use case wasn't really defined yet. Then in the 80s and 90s, a technology called blockchain was invented. Mm -hmm. And blockchain is this uh, shared distributed database that allows users to exchange and store information in a decentralized and really secure way. So blockchain technology mixed with these advancements in the internet really created the foundation that cryptocurrencies could be created on top of. Then came along this group called cypherpunks who actually have been around for, for, for many years. And this is this group of, they're, they're kind of misfits. They're these rebels who believe that technology can solve really difficult societal problems. Out of that group came someone named Satoshi Nakamoto. And uh, that's actually a pseudonymous name of either person or group of people. We're not sure, sure who it is. But uh, uh, this group of cypherpunks, uh, they were really disenchanted with the bailouts of banks during the Great Recession and with the constant money printing of central banks around the world. So Satoshi wanted to create a currency 
that would really accomplish two things. First, it would create a system for quick exchange of value without any intermediaries or whatever, what they would call rent takers in the middle. And secondly, it would create this pristine asset free of the debasement and, and uh, inflation that many in fiat and government-backed currencies experience. So the new technologies mixed with these economic philosophies of the cypherpunks combined to create Bitcoin. And Satoshi published his famous Bitcoin white paper in 2009 mm -hmm. and kicked off this new era, era of uh, cryptocurrencies. But Bitcoin is really the granddaddy of them all and the most pristine of those cryptocurrencies. Yeah, that um, that is a fascinating ramp up to basically um, get to where we are today. Um, it's, um, I, I think, you know, a lot of people... Um, don't have that history that it was sort of born out of a economic crisis. Um, it makes a lot of sense that it was. Um, I also understand that there's like some something going on in Florida right now. It's legislation or a court case where um, the identity of Satoshi is potentially um, going to be asked to be revealed. Um, I suspect they keep that like what is it, Dr. Pepper that has like the secret <laughs> yeah, sauce? Secret I know people recipe. call it those too, but like, yeah. um, hidden that, away. it'll be hidden away and no one will ever get to that. But is, is, is there um, concern about the real identity or is that sort of water under the bridge and it doesn't matter? Well, there are a lot of different theories on yeah. who Satoshi is and there are some people involved and have the, you'd have to have a really serious expertise to be Satoshi. And it's a mix of this, this technology, cryptography, experience mixed with uh, hardcore economics understanding. So very few people probably in history of the world who could do this. But these cypherpunks are crypto cryptology experts. So it may be really difficult to figure out who that person was. And Satoshi kind of disappeared uh, not too long after his white paper yeah. and his account that has, you know, uh, what would be worth billions uh, of Bitcoin in it at this point has never been touched since then. So no one knows that's who crazy. he or they are. Well, that's yes. and the point, like they could reveal one name, yeah. but is that the only person behind it? Like Kevin said, there's, it could be five people. It could be, you have no idea. So it's kind of, even if they reveal it, is it true? I mean, that would be interesting. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So there was a group of people that believed in it initially. Um, and so those were the kind of the early adopters, those that didn't believe in a central, centrally located financial system. They wanted to decentralized. They were unhappy with the amount of money that was being printed into the system. They were worried about things like inflation and other sort of macroeconomic trends, but also just sort of control too, right? Wasn't that a concern? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Inter intervention of government. I would call those the early innovators okay. of the process and early adopters would be a different. That's group. what I'm getting at. Yeah. yeah. So the adopters then, um, that's a good point. It's a good distinction. Um, while nuanced, it, it's important because somebody then said there's value in this so who are those people that saw the value in it that had actually adopted say bitcoin as a form of value or a store of value so i think with any new technology you have these early adopters if you've read one of my favorite business books uh by clayton clayton christensen called the innovator's dilemma you're familiar with disruptive technology cycles right. and it's really interesting how it works 
early adopters, they're often very free thinking, progressive, even often rebellious thinkers who want to challenge the norm. They want to innovate in some way. And uh, those were the early adopters of Bitcoin. Uh, you might be surprised that these Bitcoiners are actually very thoughtful, very philosophical, well-studied in economic theory, uh, very adept at technology. In fact, as complex as it is even today to transact in the crypto world, a decade ago, when I, was, uh, when I first got involved, it was much more difficult. You had to have a level of technical skills that most people don't have. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So... Um, we're starting to see now this adoption. Um, what are what were some of the initial use cases of those early adopters? Where did they see um, the the practical um, applicability, so to speak, of Bitcoin, for example? Yeah, if, if the use case as defined in Satoshi's white paper was to be a global decentralized currency free of these rent takers, like we talked mm. about, free of the government control that you referenced and uninhibited by inflationary and debasement pressures of modern fiat currencies. <clears throat> there are different arguments whether that use case has actually come to fruition yet. Uh, many, many view Bitcoin as a very strong store of value. They'll call it even digital gold, hard right. money, they'll often call it. But the ability to transact on a daily basis in a frictionless way has not quite arrived as, as he originally envisioned, I think. Although with the creation of different things like the Lightning Network for Bitcoin, which helps facilitate fast and cheaper transactions, with you see st countries starting to adopt Bitcoin as official currencies, other developments are happening. I think the potential is there for that initial dream to still come to fruition. You mentioned rent takers, and I, you know, I, I know there's sort of a negative um, connotation with that, particularly in light of. The discussion around cryptocurrency but obviously those are industries that fuel the world's economy also so i would imagine that there are some pretty high stake uh, or people that have high stakes in this this so-called rent taker space that are pushing back on um, on bitcoin and, and the adoption of blockchain technology or decentralized technology are those effectively the headwinds that we're seeing with cryptocurrency or are there others that you would point to I think there are a number of headwinds. I think you have government's concern from a regulatory perspective, from a, a know your customer, um, Bank Secrecy Act, uh, anti-money money laundering, uh, right. uh, Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies have a reputation for crime happening yeah. on them. Although that's a misnomer. Mm -hmm. Actually, studies show that less than 1% of the activity is actually criminal activity. Most criminal activity actually occurs in fiat currencies. Yeah. That's where it's easy. You know, blockchain is a public... Uh, record. The yeah. FBI loves the blockchain to follow criminals and the activity going on there. So that's a misnomer. Regulation is, is an issue. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for, for those of us of my generation and older to understand what this is. It's hard for us to see the value in it. A younger generation sees it. Yeah, They grew up with the internet, with smartphones, uh, playing, doing gaming that had cryptocurrencies. They've grown up a little disenchanted with our older generation. and They feel like we've left them with a number of social, environmental, mm -hmm. debt-laden issues. Right. And, and so they're disenchanted with that, and they easily adopt and understand this. But those of us a little bit older, it takes a, a, a little work. And then, then finally, I think adoption, to your point, it, it will there will be some of the older school companies that push back and, and, and uh, don't want everything to be decentralized. They want to retain their power and their profitability. 
Has there been um, thought, I mean, I'm sure there's been thought, but do you know sort of offhand what the thought is around the, the destruction of value that might come as a result of getting rid of these so-called rent takers? I mean, I imagine like, you know, I mean, we can talk in practical purposes just to sort of bring it, bring it back home. But if, you know, if you're dealing on blockchain, you might not need um, copyright attorneys. Um, because, you know, everything's on the chain and you would just go up to the chain to get permission to use it. And then you'd get the royalty that comes as a result of it. I don't know what the copyright attorney industry is, but I'm sure it's in the multi-billions. Um, has there been thought given to that? Is there sort of studies around that? I mean, that, that's one minor example. There's examples in um, probably title and escrow companies. There's examples, obviously, within the banking network specifically i mean just think of the the fees that are charged on your atm card or your credit card yeah yeah i agree i i haven't seen specific studies but there is this theory and this philosophy that we are entering what many are calling the fourth industrial revolution or mm -hmm. web 3.0 yeah web 2.0 was when we got email and yeah. and we had these interesting websites and it was really interesting it was new that was the right. 80s and 90s web 2.0 was really the the past 20 years, the Googles, Amazons, uh, Facebooks of the world, yeah, we changed social media. social media, we changed how we interact a little bit, mm -hmm. we, we started buying things online, it changed a lot of the way we, we interact on a daily basis. Web 3.0, many believe, is more impactful than that Web 2.0. To yeah. your point, it could change. These technologies have come to a point far enough that it could change how we not only interact and how we live, but how we transact with different base uh, types of companies. On and, and that could be in, in form of real estate. It could be contracts. It could be the medical community, gambling, gaming, mm. social interaction, how we work, how we share our data. All mm. of that, I believe, will dramatically change over the next next decade because of this technology. Well, this this is sort of. Um the premise for thinking about money um, as a different entity sort of altogether, retooling at least our generation's thinking um, to, I, I believe it was Michael Saylor who you tipped me off to, who says um, money is a form of energy. Um, I believe I have that right. That's right. Um, and if you do think of it, just, you know, you, you, th you hear that sort of on the surface and you say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you just pause for a few seconds and you think about money as a form of energy or currency as a form of energy, um, it really makes you rethink how you transact and how you your relationship with money. I mean, we view money as something that we use to buy gas to put in our car. We, buy, we view money as something to use to buy food that we can cook with or eat. Um, but if you sort of take money out of that equation and it's, you know, almost like, um, you get gas in your car and there's really no money that changes hands. I mean, let's be honest. When you go buy gas today, you're not paying with physical dollars no, or coins. Yeah. And even not even a credit card. Sometimes, sometimes it's your phone. You just double tap on it or your watch. Yeah. And so money has been disintermediated, at least from the psyche of many. 
But if you go sort of a deep think on this, uh, it, it does change um, the relationship that you have with with money um, and opens your mind to this notion of, I think, what the original white paper was espousing of a decentralized um, you know, network of currency that can be used to, I mean, live your life, I guess, is sort of one way to relate to it, but also to do the, all the things that happen in your day-to-day -day being. Well, I, th I think that's really true. And that goes back to what I said before. These Bitcoiners are very philosophical. Right. And talk about Michael Saylor being the one of the lead voices in this, talking about money being energy. We work really hard for our money mm -hmm. and we want it to retain value. And you don't want it to be losing value over time and debasing. In our modern fiat currency world, our fiat currencies are not backed by gold or anything mm. anymore. Mm. Historically, they were. They were backed by gold. They were a second layer form of a note that essentially you could go demand that gold if you wanted it. Well, it's now backed by full faith and credit of the government. What does that mean? <laughs> it, it, it means a lot. They could charge taxes and so forth. But at the same time, as central banks... I think for good reasons, are doing stimulus packages and things like that, printing more money. It debases our currencies. It causes inflation over time. Does your money that you're holding, is it holding its value over time? Is it losing its energy? Michael Saylor, you referenced, talks about batteries. You store a, something in a battery. Batteries lose that energy that you store in it. It's something like 2% a day. Right. Our fiat currencies are doing the same thing. They're losing their value. They're losing that energy, that hard work we put into it mm -hmm. over time. And you you also mentioned what is money? You know, philosophically, what has money been historically? You know, in most recent times, it's, uh, it, it's these papers backed by the full faith and credit of the government. Not too long ago, it was backed by gold or by silver. Not too long before that, they were gold and silver coins mm -hmm. for many hundreds of years. Before that, different societies used shells, different right. societies used rocks. Yep. In fact, the first writing in recorded history is accounting. They were accounting for debts and money owed, owed to, yeah. to different royalties, and that's where our writing came from. So there's been this long history of, of money and communication and energy all tied up. And so it's confusing to have, for those of us that are older, have this new form of currency. Mm -hmm. But it really fits in with what we've all always done. We've used technology to exchange value. And in this modern digital world, it makes sense that we go to a more digital basis and something that stores that energy in a much more efficient way. Well, and certainly all the um, references you made over historical context or perspective have come to light just in recent years. I mean, it was, you know, essentially a year ago today, we were sitting here wondering about the faith in our government um, being able to operate as we were in the midst of a post-election turmoil. Um, and, and then with the pandemic and with, um, you know, everything that we've sort of been challenged with, this notion that your money's losing value over time, I think is, is becoming more and more, um, not just relevant, but more and more well-known. I mean, it, you know, I, I don't know what the papers say today, but I suspect there's at least two articles on the front page of every major newspaper today, um, or on every major website today talking about inflation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a real concern. We have the benefit of having, you know, economists and investors, um, 
on on our teams here and you know certainly from an investment standpoint you have to be worried about inflation from a savings standpoint you have to worry about inflation so um it's it's real um that's for sure and so i i is that sort of the renewed attention i mean I, I suspect now is a good time to build the case for a, for a decentralized finance. Now is as good a time of any. I think that's part of the renewed attention. I think it's also tied up with the the idea of the rent takers, the younger yeah. generation, not wanting to give all the power and control to to other central. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Takers. So, for instance, you know, it, it costs money to move money around. If you want to move gold, it costs you know, 2% of the value of gold just to store it every right. year, but you want to transfer your gold that you own, it's going to cost you, you know, hundreds of dollars to move it to another bank. You want to send it to another country, it's going to cost, you know, a good percentage of the value of that gold. Bitcoin, this hard money can be transferred in seconds around the world for a very low cost and with in a much more secure way. If I lose for some reason, if I have to flee the country, I have my 24 word passphrase memorized to my hardware wallet where I could access that at any point. Even if I don't have my hardware wallet with it, I have access to my Bitcoin at any time because I have those words memorized in my brain. Yeah. Software wallets have a similar principle. And I think the younger generation, they want to take out the rent taker in the middle. They want to have, actually have access to their money. You want to send money, I have to go through a bank. I have to pay them fees. I have to go through a process. If I have, if I'm holding my Bitcoin or my other cryptocurrencies in my software or hardware wallet, I have access to it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and I own it and can do anything I want or need with it. It also goes back to when we talked in a previous podcast about credit and why some people in the younger generation don't want credit cards. They don't want that intermediary that yeah. the debt will be saddled with, or you have to pay interest rates. It's that easy access to have no one in between. I think that has sparked a lot of the younger generation to have more faith in this than, like you said, the older generation. Yeah. But it is so true. That's why a lot of people don't, they don't have a credit. They don't have a credit score. They're not getting credit cards because it just seems like more damaging later to pay those quote unquote rent takers that facilitate it. So it makes sense that you would have a little more faith in something that you can see, move and store at your fingertips with no one else. Good point. Yeah. The values um, of these these coins, and let's just talk specifically about Bitcoin. Um, the knock on it has been the volatility and and the the dips that it's seen, and um, uh, obviously, you know, this year has been pretty good to the value of Bitcoin. But how does how does one explain this these wild swings in value? Because most of the people looking at Bitcoin look at it from an investment standpoint. And, you know, while Ford and Apple and Google might have some volatility, it's not swinging, you know, 12%, 20% in a given cycle. So how does one sort of address that? Well, I, I think that is a legitimate concern that people have. And yes, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin included, are volatile. Uh, but if you look at the history of disruptive technologies, you see that new technologies often, e even though they'll offer a new innovation, some really interesting promises of more efficient and capable processes, they often have more clunky and cumbersome issues until the maturity 
an adoption occurs. So take an example, DVDs. When they first came around, they were really interesting. They had much better audiovisual quality than old VHS videos, but their DVD players and the DVDs were expensive. Right. And if you wanted to rent a movie, a blockbuster, there were maybe three to five movies available, even in DVDs, until the the adoption cycle happened, and all of us saw the superior technology, and it, the price came down, and the availability was greater. And the same thing happened with Netflix. Think about Netflix. At first, our internet speeds weren't fast enough to handle the, the digital streaming. You would clock out all the time. There were other buggy issues. Well, fast forward to today, and now we have on-demand movies and shows anytime we want from any all kinds of platforms at a lower price than we used to spend on cable. So cryptocurrency is in that initial phase where it is still a little clunky. It's still a little complex to transact. There's high volatility in the asset values because it's being adopted over time. And you have to be somewhat sophisticated to transact on your own. You know, there are 13,000 plus cryptocurrencies out there right now, believe it or not. Hmm. Most of those are scams, I believe. Most of those won't make it just like in the late 90s, early 2000s, the, the internet era. But the blue chips will, and they will change uh, how, how we live. Um, I'll give you an example. I wanted to see what it was like to get a loan in the decentralized finance or DeFi world which uses crypto as a right. base. So I apply, applied for a loan using my Bitcoin. I went to an exchange. I filled out an application that literally took me two minutes. The application did an automatic identity check on me. Within less than two hours, I had money wired to my personal account. It was the easiest loan I've ever gotten in my life. It, it required no background check, no interaction with a person. If for some reason I don't pay my loan, the smart contract that's behind it, automatically deducts my payments from my supplied Bitcoin without any human intervention. I think that same process will happen, uh, as we talked about, across all kinds of industries, uh, insurance, real estate, other aspects of our lives, and the volatility of the mainstream blue chip crypto assets will come down over time as we see the utility of them. Okay, so I want to go back to a point that you made about there being 13,000 coins. Um, are you referring to those as tokens or coins, or does it matter? Are they interchangeable, those terms? They're not in interchangeable. Yeah, okay. I let's, could explain let's, the let's difference. Let's touch on that, too, before yeah. we go forward. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah, you bet. And this is a little bit longer conversation, so bear with me here. Yeah. Uh, technically, some are coins and some are tokens. Okay. So I'll explain the difference. Coins are those cryptos designed specifically as currencies to be used for the exchange of value. So that's your Bitcoins. Uh, and there are some other places. You'll, you'll hear about these meme coins, Doge coins, Shiba Inu. Same thing. They're mm. they're they're coins. They're coins. Yeah. Uh, Bitcoin being the granddaddy and the most stable of all those. Then you have something called stable coins, and they peg their value to some external reference like fiat currency. Stable coins have really facilitated moving your dollars uh, from fiat into the crypto world. Okay. That's why they're so fantastic. Um, most of the rest of the uh, cryptos are actually tokens. Okay. They're considered tokens. And I'll explain what those are. It's an interesting concept. Um, some of the tokens are smart contract platforms, such as you, we've all heard of Ethereum, Solana, Avalanche, and some of those. These are like owning an equity stake in a tech company. 
their platforms that will probably be the base of much of what we do in the Web 3.0 world that we were talking about, including potentially being the platforms where we house and trade stocks and bonds and record real estate transactions will happen, happen on those. Some tokens are used for decentralized finance or DeFi protocols like Luna, Link, Aave, Uniswap, and others. Okay. Some are, and this is really interesting, and I think this is where we'll see in the next few years a lot of movement. Some are social tokens mm. for different groups you might find interesting. So, for instance, your favorite artist, musician, or sports team might have a token that allows you to participate in the profitability of their franchise or in special events or discounts. Yeah. This is growing like crazy right now. Yep. Um, some tokens facilitate gaming, some are used for the metaverse, some are used for digital storage, privacy, real estate, gambling, uh, and all kinds of things that are, are yet to be invented that will happen. Uh, this new asset class, and it's it's it will redefine how we transact and socialize in the world. It's a new asset class. It's kind of a hybrid of a currency and an equity. Right. Um, and, and one other thing I'll mention, um, I remember when I was in MBA school in the, the late nineties and the biggest companies in the world were, you know, your GEs and Exxon and, um, DuPont, Chrysler, these other right. old world companies. And they were so important at the time in a very short period of time, those Titans of industry have actually been replaced by tech companies. If you think about it mm -hmm. and you never hear about those companies anymore, hardly other than GE, we just heard last week is actually splitting apart. Splitting apart. Right. I mean, things have changed in sh such a short amount of time. I remember in MBA school, we were talking about e-commerce. That was all the buzz at the time and, and how these companies like Google would be so important. I struggled personally to understand how Google would be profitable. Mm -hmm. uh, little did I understand that Google and these other tech companies actually hold the most valuable asset in the world. That asset is data. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize how important data is. If you think about top companies today, Tesla, Apple, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, they all have our data. Right. And we give it to them for free, by the way. Yeah. And, and they farm it. They sell it back to us and to businesses, and they make a fortune doing it. Mm -hmm. So in Web 3.0, in this new world, there's this idea that using blockchain and tokens, we can take back our personal data, that we will own it, we will share it with those that we want to share it with, and we will profit from it ourselves rather than large. We can monetize it, right? We can that, monetize yeah, it rather right. than large. That is game-changing for the average person. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you made a reference to the late 90s. In the late 90s, I just checked, there were um, 7,562 publicly traded stocks that were listed. Um, so as we sit here today, there's 13,000 cryptocurrencies? Yeah, something like that. Okay, so that's just a, a point of perspective. Um, we also, you also referenced um, the, so Web 3.0 is really interesting. I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna go there, but before we go there, um, you, you reference sporting, sporting events and sports yeah. and sort of owning a part of the franchise, so to speak. And we're talking literally on the day that Staples Center, the most iconic arena in the United States for the last 20 years is being renamed crypto.com. Hmm. I suspect there's a play there for crypto.com. I know crypto.com is an exchange, um, but these, you know, you're seeing you're seeing NFTs um, be issued. You're seeing Nike get into the game with their NFT shoes. 
Um, is this sort of what you're alluding to as a way for us to participate? Because there's something salacious about that. Now, there's a lot of Web 3.0 Web 3 that we um, experienced in Web 2.0, where it was the Cisco's yeah. and um, you know some of the, the infrastructure plays, which aren't quite as salacious, but it's pretty cool to think you could own a part of you know, uh, a trophy won by your team in the form of an NFT. Is that the application that we're kind of seeing right now? Yes. Uh, and, and you referenced the 90s. So let me start this off by talking about the 90s compared to now. Yeah. And where the NFTs and these social tokens are going. In 1997, there were 150 million users of the Internet. Mm -hmm. That, If you ask me, that wasn't that long ago. Right. It was very recent. 150 million. The Internet was being adopted at 63% a year, which was the most, the, the quickest adoption of technology in world history. Fast forward to today, there are 150 million cryptocurrency users today wow. in the world. Cryptocurrency is being adopted at 115% a year right now. Wow. It is astounding what is happening. And I think there's confusion, I think, and I thought this for a lot of years, that this was just a currency it was this weird digital money mm -hmm. and it is weird digital money but it's more than that there right. is a huge social movement it's the coming together of these technology economic and social trends all at the same time and we're changing how we interact and that is uh, you can see that in these nfts these non-fungible tokens right uh, which are distinguished from bitcoin and these things which are fungible tokens meaning that they you know, they are indistinguishable from each other. Right. Non-fungible tokens, it's a, not a great name, but these are, <laughs> it's, it are, are th things like digital art, digital right. music, and eventually they'll be- Yeah, they're one-of-a-kind type exactly. pieces. Yeah, Yeah. eventually we'll probably record real estate transactions with NFTs, etc. Yeah. There's been a huge movement this year. We've heard about those, and we, we've heard of these, you know, and it seems very strange. You know, people spend a million dollars for these digital apes, these yeah. these these digital pictures. Why would people do that? That's right. so strange. And I thought the same thing. Why would people do that? Well, people see that as art. What is art? Art is a a current representation of our culture and what's happening in an artistic way. Right. Who's to say that these digital apes aren't art? They're subjective to each person. Exactly. Yeah. It it is what's happening right now, and it is interesting. And NFTs. Some are probably, a lot are probably overvalued, but this is how people will own, buy, and store a lot of their digital value going forward. NFT craze happened this year. And right now, there's a new craze going on that we talked about, these social tokens. In, in Europe, you'll see these, these soccer teams, these massive soccer teams with huge, very fanatical right. uh, fan bases. Yeah. And, and they want more of an interaction, social interaction with that team. So they can buy these tokens. They can participate in events others can't participate in. Yeah. Uh, the tokens are worth money. They can buy things w with them at, at the stadium. They can get discounts, et cetera. We're starting to see artists, uh, even musicians. Musicians will issue some tokens and say, I'm doing a new album. And I want you, my biggest fans, to participate in this. And where you're going to participate in the profitability. I don't want to go to Sony, whoever my uh, former company is, a rent taker, yeah. and pay them licensing ninety percent of yeah. my profits. Mm -hmm. I want most of my profits. I want to share that with my biggest fans. 
what does that create? That creates a network. And if you've heard of Metcalf's law, it's this principle of the value of networks. And that is what is happening with cryptocurrency. network effect. Network effect. Network mm -hmm. is so valuable. So if you're an artist and want to create a network effect, if I own that token of that artist, I'm not only the big fan I used to be, I'm a bigger fan. Yeah. I'm selling that album to everyone because I, I want to participate in that profitability with that artist. It is a new way of doing business that's hard to wrap our heads around. Yeah, it it is. But when you put it in that context, it, it makes sense. Um, you know, I mean, the Green Bay Packers were famous for, you know, becoming public and sharing um, their ownership with the city of Green Bay, you could buy and then you could buy stock in the Packers. And so it's, it, this is the sort of digital extension of that, that concept and, and capitalizing on the fanaticism that is around sports. I mean, it's happening in the MLB, it's happening with the NBA. And obviously, like you said, it's happening with, with uh, soccer teams in Europe. I believe Taylor Swift is even in the game um, with her <laughs> new, with her dog. New, They're all in. Yeah. Um, okay. So web, web 3.0, there's still a lot of work obviously to be done. There's, there's, so these are sort of teasers to what is to come, but for web 3.0 to truly work, it's my understanding that we need to go from, you know, where we were with AOL and CompuServe um, <laughs> to Yahoo, to Google, to YouTube. I mean, you know, it was great to have AOL Everyone had it. every day, but you know, you were, if your internet connection was down or it was bad, like it was back then, I mean, I don't know how many. You could only use the internet if someone wasn't on the phone. If someone was on That's the phone. right. I mean, yeah. there were so many restrictions around it. Um, that now you would never even think These about. are stories your dad told you, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but these are stories that Kevin and I lived firsthand. Um, fair enough. But um, is that sort of the evolution we have to go through with Web 3.0? And do you think we can, we can get there without having the hiccup that we did in 2001 when, you know, a lot of these pets.com, you know, sort of being the marquee example, it just didn't work because it was ahead of its time, essentially is what they said. Yeah, I... I think so. I, we're headed into this era that people are calling the metaverse. Mm -hmm. And the metaverse is, you know, it's really the culmination of Web 3.0 of this digital momentum that we already had going on for many years where we live more in this digital universe. We own more in the digital universe and hopefully our own data within right. that universe where we interact more. Many of us work from home. Um, many of us socialize. And so will, the, will this go forward without any roadblocks and road bumps? No, I don't think so. We're human and, and life is complicated. And yep. I think some of these will take many years to, to happen. And I think we'll be surprised how quickly some of these, we adopt some of these things. Will we have uh, bumps in the road around regulation, around usage of personal data, around people having to adopt a new technology that's a little scary and confusing at first? Absolutely. It won't be clean, but I think in a lot of ways it's very interesting. And I think the younger generation, this is very easy for them. They get it, mm -hmm. that, that this is the life they've lived in. Uh, those of us that are older, as the technology matures, it will be easier to interact. It will become more comfortable. I personally will never, you know, having grown up as a, a child of the 70s, who ran around like a wild animal playing outside all day long, never played a computer game, 
and, uh, you know, feel constrained by a little by this digital world. I'll probably never change that, yeah. but I will adopt a little bit and adapt in the way I work, in the way I interact, in the way I transact on a financial basis. And I think we'll all find our own level of comfort in this new metaverse. Okay. Yeah. So you, you do bring up a good, um, terminology of the metaverse. So the metaverse is the encapsulation of web 3.0 and other areas of our digital life sort of coming together of a hybrid reality virtual environment is that i mean i don't want to get too much into the metaverse but i do want to sort of put a pin in it because it is an important terminology obviously with the name change of facebook and um you know with a lot of the gaming companies now specifically targeting that that terminology how would you help our listeners sort of um conceptualize that I, you, you described it pretty well, but I just want to make sure we get it really clear. I think you described it very well too. It's the culmination of all these new technologies and this new digital world that in many ways we'll live in and we will own. And we're already sort of living in it. Yeah. Um, right. So, cause the metaverse to me sounds scary. I gotta be honest. Like yeah. it's a, it's a <laughs> weird, yeah, no. it's a weird place. I too, I grew up with video games, but I, you know, wasn't a gamer per se. And, um, I lived a lot of my life outdoors too but so the metaverse is something that seems restricting to me or constricting to but it but it's sort of just a a realization of where we are i mean i'm sitting here with what one two three four screens in front of me five if you count my phone my cell phone um so i guess i'm already in the metaverse yeah. <laughs> we, we are in the metaverse but what will look different than the way we envision it now is the decentralized nature of okay. it. okay that's a really important story. And that's just the beauty of Bitcoin. It is the most decentralized technology or financial approach in the world. Mm-hmm. It's, it, if someone went and attacked it, it would be very hard because there are thousands of miners around the world that have the data behind Bitcoin. There's no central ownership of that. Got it. And it's the most decentralized of any of the cryptocurrencies. The metaverse will be more decentralized than we envision today. So the Facebooks and Googles, theoretically will become less important in this, you know, as a single entity, as a single entity, but the, but the concepts that they promote of connecting with individuals, getting search results real time, you don't necessarily need to go to a social media site to get that information. It like automatically shows up because you're ostensibly thinking about it or you have it pre-programmed somewhere. Is that yeah. sort of the idea? And you're owning your data more. And you're Facebook your data. isn't, uh, you're Got renting it. your data right. to them and profiting and, and they're not taking the profit. Gamers get this. So yeah. my boys who, who play games for years have bought skins in right. different games. I remember, you know, playing Minecraft with my boys when they were young, they wanted to buy a different skin so they could have a different look to their game and they had to, to, to purchase that. And right. you had to go through a process to implement that. It's really complex. Uh, and there are modern blockchain games coming out, uh, Axie and uh, all kinds of other different games are happening where actually you can make a living playing these games. Mm-hmm. You, you are playing games, you can buy characters and you can trade them across different types of games. Yeah. You can rent your, your characters or your car that you built to someone else, some professional gamer, and you can earn money doing that. It's, yeah. It is a, such a different approach. So the gamers get it. They, gamers they're living it. in that metaverse. It's clunky now. And over time, this, this will build out. And I, I think to my point earlier, we can all adopt the metaverse in a, in the way we're comfortable. I'm very excited about the more frictionless way of transacting in the world. It'll cost less, be good for less wealthy people, for, for countries that experience a lot of inflation. 
Um, we'll own our assets and our data a lot more. And, and as I referenced earlier, data is the most valuable asset in the world. I don't want other people managing housing my data. I right. own that. I want to profit from that. And, and I think that is, again, very game-changing for the average person. Yeah, that's a, that's a better um, uh, perspective, I think, than certainly than Zuckerberg's keynote address that um, <laughs> probably was the, the reason for my um, hesitancy of adopting this metaverse. But the way you, you, you described it, that, that does seem like a better state than we're in today. Well, and to your point, sorry to interrupt, but Zuckerberg yeah. is a brilliant person. He sees where all this is for going. For sure. He, yeah. he has he's always seen this with yeah. Facebook, and he's preempting a little bit. Mm -hmm. The metaverse won't live just in Facebook. Right. They'll participate in it, but they'll lose a lot of control and power that they had historically. Well, and there's others, I mean, not to go down too far this path, but there's others that think, you know, that Facebook's already implemented a lot of these things, just unbeknownst to, to the rest of us. The rest of us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So as we decentralize um, and we bring it back to currency, um, we're starting to see banks, including ourselves, First Foundation Bank, um, looking at cryptocurrency specifically bitcoin as part of the financial system so to speak what what is that um starting to look like and what does that mean for bitcoin i agree banks and financial institutions are taking note you're seeing a lot of large investment houses starting to invest a portion of portfolios you're seeing them starting to to advise their customers to invest a certain part of their portfolios are starting to understand many people who thought crypto was garbage for many years are starting to get the concept. And I think banks are too. I, I think two things are happening with, with, with banks. Banks are starting to get a lot of questions from their customers around cryptocurrency. Banks are starting to see customers transfer assets to crypto exchanges out of the banking environment. Trust me, that gets a bank's attention. <laughs> They're noticing that. Right. Secondly, banks are just starting to understand there's a disruptive technology out there. Yep. Different railings. Mm -hmm. our, our banking environment was built off of you know 50-year-old technology, mm -hmm. which is not bad. I mean, we take very seriously in banking the safeguarding of our client assets mm -hmm. and the customer service around that. And these systems are tried. They're proven. Right. And we're very conservative and want to sure we're, uh, ensure we're safeguarding those assets. But there's this new technology on a very different railing. It's on the internet mm -hmm. using blockchain right. technologies and eventually will be very secure, very easy, lightning fast, and very cheap. So we as banks need to learn about this technology and figure out how to be a part of this transformation. And is, the, is this notion that the government wants to regulate or um, play play a role in financial institutions' participation is that is that creating uh, is that making Bitcoin less attractive or, or more attractive in your opinion? In my opinion, and many would disagree, I think it makes it more attractive. Yeah. So first of all, the fact that government wants to regulate it means they're acknowledging it's an asset. Okay. So the first and foremost that they say we under we maybe we don't understand it fully but we got to put resources to understand it and we recognize it exactly yeah. yeah we recognize it secondly um many people aren't comfortable interacting in the complex 
crypto world. Right. Yeah. You mentioned this earlier, um, and I think that's an important distinction too. If you wanted to get, if you wanted to participate in today, you're you're going down some pretty interesting uh, places, rabbit holes yeah. in the in the worldwide webs, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You don't have anyone there to help you, like your trusted bank that, yeah. that many of us are used to. You don't have FDIC insurance. Uh, often, um, you don't have no one to go to if you experience a loss. Yeah. Um, if you make a mistake and send your crypto to a wrong address, you may have no recourse. You could lose oh, your money. It happens yeah. all the time. If you lose I'm your sure. wallet, you right. can lose your crypto. I send emails to the wrong people all the time, so I'm sure <laughs> well, I can only imagine what would happen if I start sending crypto. Even dealing with these centralized crypto exchanges that we're all familiar with can be problematic. Their customer service is horrendous. I personally have had issues with exchanges. You can't talk to person. You send a help ticket in. It could take days oh, and sometimes weeks for huh. them to get back to you. Because it's okay. not staffed, I would think, like a bank. It's not a people necessarily. That, isn't that the point? It's not interacting yeah. with people. Exactly. But that's hard for us to adjust to. Yeah. And you hear every month about a new hack in some exchange and people losing their money. Good news is I don't want to scare everyone. <laughs> Things are getting better. Yeah. Exchanges are trying to be more customer friendly. Uh, some recent loss cases, some exchanges have, have reimbursed their customers due to losses that weren't their fault. But we have a long way to go. Regulation will help smooth all this over. And um, I think banks will have a large role to play in all of this technology. We have history doing this. We have the rigor of protecting client assets and customer service as an industry. And I think we'll play a major part in all of this. And is that to say that the FDIC will sort of be the the appropriate regulatory entity or do you think there'll be a new entity born to look at digital currencies i th it is still up in the air who the ultimate regulator of digital currency is. right and of course you have uh, gainsler and the the sec trying to push for the sec to be that regulator yep. and we'll see how that plays out uh, i suspect there will probably be some specialized agency under one of the existing regulators okay. But then all of the re bank regulators, OCC, Federal Reserve, FDIC, will have to play a role. Yeah. Cryptocurrency will be a major part. I don't foresee that we'll ever have FDIC insurance on cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. But I think there will be some very strict regulations around storage of cryptocurrencies, how to interact. And there's still a lot of case law to come out ar around bankruptcies and divorces and, and these areas that cryptocurrencies have never been a part of. Yet. Yeah, right. Um, and... And as the use case right now, um, I know we sort of went into like the social token use cases, but for the use case for Bitcoin right now, is it essentially buy, hold, and what else do we do with it within sort of the, the, the current systems? There are a lot of philosophies on that. Okay. I, of course, am a longtime cryptocurrency holder. I believe Bitcoin is the most pristine asset. I hold others as well. I think it's the most pristine asset. I buy it and hold it because I think it has a long-term uh, value as a, a store of value, a store of energy, as Michael Saylor would say. Right. Uh, you have the other end of the spectrum where you have in El Salvador, which has adopted Bitcoin as legal tender. They've given all of their citizens a, a software wallet to transact, and every day people are transacting in Bitcoin, and they're holding it as, as you know, they're receiving wages in Bitcoin. So there's philosophies anywhere along that spectrum mm -hmm. and i suspect it will play out as all things do somewhere in the middle and become complicated yeah yeah we all chuckle because i think it is um super complicated but is the is the use case today 
um, you know, grandma wants to get grandson a watch for graduation. Do we see the use case being instead of that Rolex watch for graduation, they get one Bitcoin? I think that's a fantastic use case. And I would personally, and this is not financial advice, we're offering no financial advice here. It's just our <laughs> yeah. opinions. I think that's a fantastic uh, gift, yeah. <laughs> gift. Yeah. for especially younger generation that they will get it. It's much better than a Rolex. Why was a Rolex valuable in, in the past? Yeah, it had some metals in it. Metal, oftentimes right. were valuable. Mm -hmm. We used to wear our gold on ourselves to show both our riches, but as a place to, to store our value right. in some safe way. We can do that in a different way now. Yeah. We can hold it digitally in a more secure way and we don't have to go show it off unless you want to buy an NFT and show off online that you own that F NFT through Twitter, yeah. which is another way. But I think that is a great gift going forward for people because I personally think these blue chip cryptos will be worth a lot and will continue to appreciate in value over time. Okay, so the other use case might be you this sort of notion of a global currency if you wanted to buy a home, a retirement home in Tasmania. Let's just go, you know, as far away from California as we can. Um, if you were paying in Bitcoin, perhaps you have a leg up because it's easier. To I mean, maybe it's not easier to transact, but there's a higher value associated with that than converting from U.S. dollar to an Australian dollar or something like that. Yeah, I would give a couple answers to that. I think it is easier to transact, especially okay. internationally. You're yeah, hearing yeah. a lot of these crypto millionaire millionaires and billionaires. They're buying homes in other countries, right? And within ten minutes, you you've paid for that uh, property. Yeah. It's cleared, and it happens faster than any uh, traditional legacy financial system in the world. That's number one. So that is happening today. But secondly, I would say many people are actually using Bitcoin, and they'll borrow fiat currency against that because you don't want to sell or use your pristine asset if you don't have to. Mm. Like I referenced earlier, it's so easy to get a loan on mm -hmm. your crypto. So if you have enough Bitcoin that you can get borrow that against loan. that and you still get the appreciating value of that Bitcoin, get an easy loan, and that's how you pay for uh, properties potentially in the future. It, it may be a different way, more of a saver's market. We, we're, we're, our economy is based on a debtor's market today. And uh, if you study Ray Dalio, and some, mm -hmm. he has a fantastic book called Big Debt Crises. He talks about the long-term 70-year debt cycles that we go through. And w the things that we do often encourage more and more debt to be taken out. If right. you look at the amount of debt held by corporations, governments around the world, it is astounding. Mm -hmm. And maybe these cryptocurrencies push us in a different direction where we're savers and we're using these pristine assets to borrow against. Yeah, that's interesting. And we'll reference the book in our show notes as well. Um, big fan of Ray Dalio's principles too, just as a point of reference. Um, okay, so we have some use cases. We have clients asking about it. So um, your thought is it's coming. It's, it's here. It's here. It yeah. is here. Okay. And we all need to learn about it. It will uh, grow over time. I personally have... Uh, I'm as one of my favorite investors, Raul Paul says, I'm irresponsibly long on cryptocurrency. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot yeah. of my personal assets, but I think it's a smart idea for people to look at allocating some, at least small portion of their, their personal finances into the cryptocurrency world and, and dipping their toe into it. Yeah. If nothing else you, you learn, it's like the NFT market right now. You can get in for just pennies. Um, and just being there, the value of what you learn is like 
way exceeds any upside reward you might get from the actual NFT that you purchase, at least in my opinion. Agreed. Um, that's cool. Okay, well, we covered a lot. Um, we um, want to have you back because okay. we want to do a check-in on a few things. Are there some areas, before we wrap up here, are there some areas that you want to you touch on um, that we didn't touch on? I think this was a really good high-level discussion. It's for some that are first hearing, hearing some of these principles, it might be a little mind-blowing. It's yeah. taken me a while to get here and yeah. see what's going on. As I referenced earlier, I missed, and you would think, you know, when you go into MBA school, supposedly getting a really good finance education, I completely missed the value in these modern technology companies, the value of data. Yeah. And that transfer of wealth that happened from the old school companies to these newer technology companies. That same thing's happening today. I vowed I would not miss the next transition. There is a huge transition going on mm. in the economy, this digital transition. And cryptocurrencies are the embodiment of what is happening. They are a new asset class that's a hybrid between currencies and equities. They're changing the way we will transact and do business. This will take many years, but all of us will be involved in some way. And I think it's time for all of us to start learning about this and appreciating what's happening. Yeah, that's very well said. It's, it's um, inspiring to think of it in the context, too, of you know, studying um, past economic cycles and studying um, disruptive technologies or just things that have happened over the history of time. It seems like we are at one of those right now. So, um, okay, if someone wanted to learn more and sort of go back and do um, a primer, obviously we touched on a lot of terms too. We didn't like define yeah, many of the terms. Um, yeah, so short of us putting a glossary in the show notes, what's a, what's a good... What are some good resources? You reference Michael Saylor. I know he has a podcast. Um, you reference Ray Dalio, but are there other areas that you'd reference to, for people to go to? If you really want extra credit, I'd read Satoshi's white paper. Okay, it's yeah. fairly technical but very interesting. But if you want a shortcut, you know we have some resources on our First Foundation website that clients can refer to, and more will be coming over time as as we start offering some. Yeah. some products. There's a lot of great information on the internet. I, I think in this modern world, the quickest act access to information is often on Twitter. And a lot of great things coming out daily on Twitter you can reference. There's some great podcasts out there. My favorite is by one of my favorite investors, Raul Paul. Okay. And I would highly suggest this podcast. Uh, it is called Real Vision. It's free. Raul Paul has a really fascinating vision on on where we're headed and what we're doing strongly suggest that there are other really interesting podcasts money reimagined unchained what bitcoin did many others uh and then are there's some thought leaders that i personally follow and, and most of them that i uh, most interested in are macro investors they see macroeconomic trends and a lot of these macro investors absolutely see these trends going on with crypto. So my four favorites, you've referenced a few, but my four favorite are Raul Paul, Mike Novogratz, mm -hmm. Ray Dalio, and Michael Saylor. And these are fantastic people and visionary investors. Okay. Well, there you heard it. So you got some, got some homework, homework yeah. and some extra credit, it sounds like. Um, well, Kevin, thank you. That was a wealth of wisdom. Yes. Um, we may have mystified a little bit more than demystified, <laughs> um, but we've certainly, hopefully, opened up the listeners' minds to this potential of what cryptocurrency means for the modern banking system. Ellie, what are your thoughts? 
I think that's a good way. It, mm-hmm. it kind of did mystify more, but it, it prompts you to learn more. And I like how you said, we need to learn more. You know, don't just jump into it, understand it. I think that's the biggest thing is people don't quite understand it. So kind of getting those basics and then realizing that while it seems like this new, everything's like foreign and confusing and complicated, it's built on principles, like you said, from the past. This is kind of that next wave. We didn't know Google. We didn't know email. Look how much of an influence that is in our lives now. So learn it. There is a history and kind of a case study of it to see back that it will make a huge impact most likely in our lives, like you said, in the next decade. So understand it, learn more about it. So even if you don't feel comfortable or you don't have the resources to buy Bitcoin today, you know, you understand it for farther down the road where you might. I think that's really well said. I think humans by nature are are good and we are very social. Everything we do is we try to bring the society together in a very peaceful way. And the internet, despite some of its issues, did a lot of good things for our society and brought us together in ways we never could before. And this transition will do the same thing. Mm -hmm. That's what we're doing as humans. And it will make our lives a lot better in some ways. There will be some things that aren't great about it. Most of it is humans trying to do good things and to evolve to a higher level of being. Yeah. Well, I think any conversation that um, starts with talking about AOL and CompuServe, (laughs) references Taylor Swift, references Liverpool hooligans, and ends with humans are good, has to have a part two to it. So we want you back. Um, So with that, thank you for joining the Wealth and Wellbeing podcast. Um, We look forward to part two of this discussion, whenever it might happen. And be sure to check out other episodes as well. Thank you. Thank you.